Welcome to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of John, chapter 20, verse 31, as we follow along with today's lesson. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and by believing have life through his name. It is always wise to encourage a person to read the Gospel of John who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. If you can just get them to read, challenge them, get them to read the Gospel of John. Because God said, my word will not return to me void. It will accomplish the purposes for which I have sent it. And if this gospel was sent to cause a person to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that by believing that they might have life through his name, then it's a great book to get people to read. It's tragic that so many people have such completely biased prejudice against Jesus without ever knowing him or really knowing about him except from enemies of Jesus. All they know is what they've heard others say. And they begin to parrot what others have said. Like when Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you ask this of yourself or, you know, are you just parroting what you've heard others say? And there are a lot of people whose unbelief is based upon negative things that they've heard about Jesus, but they've never read as much as the gospel of John. Now, it is really Wrong to have an opinion on something before you really examine the facts. And it is foolish to have an opinion on an issue that is important as your eternal salvation without truly giving an honest examination of the facts. To develop a prejudice against Jesus is sheer folly unless you have personally examined the facts and then have made up your mind. I cannot respect a person's judgment who has already prejudged a situation before he has been able to examine all of the facts. Like I've often said, If I see a person sit down at a meal and immediately take the salt shaker and start salting all of his food without first tasting it, I don't respect his judgment. He's already prejudged it's not salty enough. But how do you know that the cook didn't drop a lot of salt and tried to get it out and couldn't get it? And it's so salty, you you know, it's going to just bite you when you eat it. And here you are salting it down before you ever try it. But there are people who have prejudged Jesus Christ, the Bible, the gospel of Jesus Christ, without ever having personally, thoroughly examined it. 
If you have personally, thoroughly examined it and you say, well, I still don't believe it, then I say, well, I respect your right to have an opinion. But if you have an opinion without really looking at the evidence, then I don't respect that at all. I don't respect your opinion. And so it's good to get people to read the Gospel of John. If that's all of the Bible they ever read, that's important. And and that's probably the most important book for an unbeliever to read. You know, they're always interested in the beast and the horns and everything else, and they turn to the book of Revelation, you know, and uh, then they say, oh, you can't understand the Bible, you know. But read the Gospel of John. Encourage them to read the Gospel of John. Read it and then let's discuss it. And the entrance of the Word so often just brings light. And God's Word will not return void. And so John does write with a definite, slanted view and with a definite purpose in mind convincing people that Jesus is the Messiah, that by their believing that, they can have eternal life through his name. Let's turn to John chapter 21. Now, it would seem that the gospel of John actually ended with chapter 20. John puts on a beautiful conclusion. Uh, Many other signs... Truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. And that seems to be the very logical end of the book. That is sort of sums it up. I, you know, Jesus did a lot of other things. I didn't write them, but I wrote these that you might believe that he is the Messiah. So that chapter 21 is almost an epilogue to the Gospel of John. It's as though John wrote this later and added it to the Gospel. Uh, A One further incident, and John says it is the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection. Now, he appeared to individuals, but the disciples as a group, this is his third appearance. Now, we know that his first appearance was on the day of his resurrection. That evening, as the disciples were gathered together, Jesus appeared to them. Thomas was absent. But earlier that day, he had appeared to Mary Magdalene. Earlier that day, he had appeared to... uh, Peter, and then to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then in the evening, he appeared to the disciples with Thomas absent. The following Sunday night, a week later, he again appeared to all of the disciples. Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus told them to go into Galilee and he would meet them there. And so sometime between the second Sunday and uh, the the final appearance of Christ on the Mount uh, of Olives, Jesus 
went to the Sea of Galilee to meet the disciples up there. The angels at the tomb told the ladies to tell the disciples to go to Galilee where Jesus would meet them. Jesus actually appointed a place in Galilee uh, where he would meet them. And so John is giving this third meeting of Christ. Now, he did meet them many other times. This was probably shortly after his resurrection. For 40 days, he was appearing to them, various places under various circumstances. Paul gives us a list of the appearances of Christ uh, in one of his epistles. And so uh, this is the appearance in Galilee that we have in chapter 21. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and this is how he showed himself. There were together Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and two other unnamed disciples. They were there. They were waiting for Jesus in the appointed place. And Simon Peter said unto them, I'm going fishing. They were restless. Their future was still uncertain. They didn't know yet what the future held. And in this restlessness, just waiting, Peter, it would appear, more or less was just giving up. He said, well, I'm going fishing. Sort of, I'm going back to fishing. He was a fisherman when Christ first met him. It was from his fishing that Jesus called him to become a fisher of men. Luke's gospel tells us in chapter 5 concerning the call of Peter from his nets. Jesus had been thronged by the multitudes. They were pressing so much that it was difficult to speak to them. So Peter's ship was there on the shore of Galilee and Jesus stepped into it and asked Peter to just pull off a little ways from shore that he might teach the people. And so from Peter's ship, Jesus taught the multitudes. When he was finished with the lesson, he said to Simon, now, Let's go out into the deep and you can let down your nets for a draft of fish. And Peter said, well, Lord, uh, we were fishing all night and, and we didn't catch anything. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll do it. In other words, I know better. But to satisfy you, I'll do it. And so when they let down their nets, immediately they were filled with fish. 
And the nets began to break, we are told. So Peter whistled for John and James who were at the shore in their ship to come on out. And they began to fill their ships with fish to the extent that the boats began to sink because of the multitude of fish. And when they came to shore, Jesus said, okay, leave it now and I will make you fishers of men. Now some three years later, restless because Jesus hasn't appeared, impatient, Peter said, I'm going fishing. No doubt Peter was a natural leader. The rest of the fellows and those that were there said, well, we'll go with you. Seven of the disciples are told of here. And so they went forth and entered into a ship immediately. And that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore But the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Actually, they were about 100 yards out. And at that distance, they couldn't recognize him. It was probably still dusk, early morning. And they heard this voice. They could see the form. And they heard this voice calling, saying, Children, do you have any meat? Or did you catch anything? That's really sort of an... (laughs) Obvious question isn't for fishermen. You see a guy fishing, you say, will he catch anything? I mean, it's just one of those obvious questions for fishermen. It goes way back. Catch anything? And they answered him, no. Now, some have said that you can't believe the Gospels because they were written by fishermen and you know what liars they are. (laughs) Now, whoever said that... didn't realize that only one of the Gospels was written by a fisherman, and that was John. And uh, notice John just says, he said, no. <laughs> I mean, notice he didn't tell about the whoppers that got away or anything else. He just said, nope. <laughs> didn't catch anything. And he said unto them, cast the net on the right side of the ship, and you shall find. Now, interestingly enough, back in Luke's gospel, chapter 5, it followed a night of failure. Lord, we've been fishing all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, you know, we'll do it. What a difference there is between self-motivated service and directed service. Service that is directed by the Lord is fruitful. So often that which we do just as a matter of routine is unprofitable. It doesn't gain us anything, but service directed by the Lord. Notice how certain the Lord is. Cast your nets on the right side and you shall find. He is directing now again their activities. And when Jesus directs the activities of your life, you can be certain that there's going to be success. So they cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. The net was 
burgeoning with fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, again, John talking about himself, said unto Peter, it is the Lord. You know, whenever the nets get so full that you can't draw them in, you know there is only one reason for it, and that is, it is the Lord. I look at Calvary Chapel and what the Lord has done, and incidentally, next Sunday we'll be celebrating 30 years at Calvary Chapel. And when I look at what God has done in just 30 short years, when I look at the many Calvary chapels across the United States, of the 25 largest churches in the United States, nine of them are Calvary chapels. When I look around the world and see all of the missionaries, hundreds of missionaries around the world, you see nets <laughs> that are so full, you just can't, you know there's only one reason for it, it is the Lord. It isn't a planned program. It isn't an ambition fulfilled. It isn't a 10-year goal-setting kind of an operation. It's just the Lord. It can't be attributed to the genius of man or to the skills. It can only be, it's just the Lord. And so when John saw they could not draw in the net because of the multitude, he said, it's the Lord. And that's always the case. It's just the work of the Lord. And so Peter, girt on his fisher's coat, for he was naked. That is, he was just wearing the typical loincloth. So he grabbed his coat and he dove into the sea and he swam to shore. Again, impulsive, impetuous Peter and just not willing to wait to, you know, get in the little boat and row. Just swim. It's the Lord. His eagerness to get to Jesus. I love it. And the other disciples came in a little ship for they were not far from land, only about a hundred yards. And they were dragging the net with the fish. Not going to let that catch go. And so they come dragging the net in with the fish. And as soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals, and there were fish laid thereon, and there was bread. Now, where did Jesus get the bread? Where did Jesus get the fish? We don't know. But he had it all prepared for them. And he said unto them, Bring the fish which you have now caught, and so Simon Peter went and drew the net to land full of great fish, 153. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Now, it is said that Simon was sort of a giant of a man. Uh, there is a book called The Giant Fisherman, and he seeks to 
trace some of the early legends and stories about Peter, that he was a big fellow. And uh, it is perhaps an indication here because they could not draw the net into the ship, but Peter, it would seem, drew it to shore by himself. Uh, And so, uh, so many, and yet was not the net broken. Now remember back in Luke 5, the net began to break. Here, the net was not broken. And the number of fish, 153. There must be some significance to the number, but I'll leave Chuck Missler to tell you what it might be (laughs) because he always finds significance in numbers. (laughs) To me, it's just 153. Now, why 153? I don't have any idea. Uh, (laughs) Augustine had an idea it's probably worth as much as anybody's idea not much (laughs) but this is how they come to these kind of things there were ten commandments so ten represents the law There were seven graces manifested in the life of Jesus. So 10 plus 7 is 17. If you count or add up the numbers from 1 to 17, 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 up to 17, it totals up to 153. So it represents all of those that will be brought in through the law and through grace. (laughs) <laughs> so you know it's why are fire engines red <laughs> papers are red too two plus two equals four and you know and four times three is twelve twelve is a ruler and you know queen mary was a ruler queen mary was also a ship and i mean you go on and on and on and uh Finally, you get two Russians are also called Reds, and because fire engines are always Russian, they're red, you know. So, uh, so I, I, as you can tell, I don't really put too much stock in, uh, you know, the reason for the numerics. Um, it's interesting, it's fascinating what Chuck Mitzler can find in these things, but... Um, I sometimes wonder. (laughs) Jesus said unto them, come and dine. And none of his disciples durst ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Now that to me is an interesting statement because after his resurrection and in the many appearances of Jesus, he was not always immediately recognized. You remember when Mary Magdalene saw him in the garden, she thought that he was the gardener. That could be because it was early morning and she had been crying. But the two disciples on the road to Emmaus did not recognize him. 
That's possible that their heads were just down because they were so dejected and they didn't even bother to look up. But there seems to be some significance here that he didn't appear exactly as he had. The very fact that John would say, none dared to ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord would indicate that there was probably some change in his appearance after his resurrection from the dead. We know that he still bore the marks of the cross. In his hands, there were still the prints of the nails. There was still the mark where, his, where the spear pierced his side. It is possible that his face still bore the marks of the horrible abuse at the hands of the soldiers and of the officers of the high priest. They had beaten him quite severely. They had put a sack over his head and hit him with their fist. They had pulled out his beard, just grabbed hands full and pulled it out. His face was so disfigured that in looking at him, you would not even recognize him as a human being. Isaiah told us by way of prophecy. So it could be that he was still bearing some of those marks of the horrible abuse that he received at the hands of the soldiers and of the high priest officers who had so horribly beat him. Of course, he had had the scourging. He had had the crown of thorns pressed on his brow. His face was probably swollen. His eyes may be swollen shut from the buffeting that he took and thus hard to recognize. We are told by Zechariah that when Jesus returns, they shall look on him whom they had pierced. We are told in the book of Revelation that in heaven, when the time comes for the redemption of the earth, for the kingdom of God to be established and Satan's power and hold to be broken and Satan overthrown, that as the title deed to the earth is presented in heaven and the angel asks who's worthy to take this scroll and to break the seals, that when John is weeping because no one was found worthy, how that the elder said to John, don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed. He will take the scroll and loose the seals. And John said, I turned and I saw him as a lamb that had been slaughtered. So that in heaven he may still bear 
the marks of his suffering on the cross. Isaiah tells us that when we beheld him, we turned our face from him. And there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. It could be that your very first view of Jesus will be a great shock. Have you ever seen a person who has been in an automobile accident and has had their face cut up and all, and when you go in to see them, you just sort of look away because it is shocking to see uh, how disfigured they are as the result of a severe accident. And that's sort of what Isaiah said. When we see him, we hid, as it were, our faces from him because there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. But then Isaiah went on to say, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Is it possible that God has allowed him to keep the marks of his suffering and of his death so that we will be reminded when we see him of the great extent of God's love for us that he was willing to allow his son to be thus physically abused in order that you might be forgiven your transgressions and your sins in order that you might be able to have a share in the eternal inheritance of the kingdom of God and that every time we look at Jesus, there'll be just that fresh rush of love. Lord, you were willing to take that for me. Is that possible? I don't know. It, there are indications that that might be so. And that could be the reason why they didn't immediately recognize Jesus. Isaiah said, and when we beheld him, his face was so disfigured that you could not recognize him as a human being. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. I offer that only as a suggestion. I don't know. I offer it as a suggestion. Now John tells us this is the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. Now, after this, he showed himself still more. As I told you, there were 40 days, and we'll get that in the first chapter of Acts next week. For 40 days, Jesus was seen of his disciples after his resurrection. He did return, and they did return to Jerusalem. At one point, he was seen by over 500 disciples at one time. And there were other appearances to James and to others. His last appearance to the disciples was in Jerusalem or outside of Jerusalem, he went with them over to the Mount of Olives as far as to the city of Bethany, which is down the hill towards the Judean wilderness on the Mount of Olives. 
And it was from there that he ascended into heaven. And that was the last time the disciples saw him. That was about seven days before the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them on the day of Pentecost. And so uh, this is the third time, not the last time, but the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me more than these? Jesus used the word agapas when he asked, lovest thou me? The word agapas or agape is a love in the realm of the spirit. It is the deepest love that man can know. It is true love. The shallowest love is probably love on the physical level. That's eros, and that's the thing that Hollywood plays up so much. The erotic aspects, physical aspects. But it can be questioned whether or not that is true love. Surely it is self-gratifying. And a person who is involved in that kind of a relationship is thinking only of the physical aspects of the relationship. The gratification that I am getting from this relationship. And so often it isn't really a real genuine love for the other person. But it is only a self-gratifying kind of a love. It's because what it does for me. There is another love, the phileo, which is emotional love. And uh, it is a brotherly love. It is deeper than the eros. We get the word Philadelphia from two Greek words, phileo, aldophos, which is brother. And so the city of brotherly love, phileo, aldophos, Philadelphia. And uh, that's love on an emotional level. It is sort of a give and take. It's a mutual kind of a benefit from the relationship. I love you because you love me and you make me feel good. Uh, you like Italian food and I like Italian food. You like garlic bread and I like garlic bread. And we both like the classical music and, you know, we have these things that we can share and we appreciate and it's sort of a give and take kind of a thing. There's a mutual benefit from it. But when you get to the agapas or the agape, 
This becomes a giving love. And it is more interested in the giving aspect than it is the receiving aspect. In fact, it gives without expecting to receive. It continues to give even if it doesn't receive. It is the deepest form of love. It is the love that is described of God. God so loved the world. There that word agape is used. God's love for the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's a giving love. Now this word agape is almost unknown in classical Greek. They knew much about the Sturgio and the Eros and the Phileo. In fact, uh, uh, Cupid was uh, the god of love, Eros. But they knew very little about the agape. In fact, it's a word that was almost coined by the New Testament for the New Testament a word that was developed to separate this kind of love because it is different and exceeds all other kinds or types of love. Now, whenever a new word is introduced into a language, that word has to be defined so that when a person uses it, you know what they're talking about. And so there are two places in the New Testament where this word agape is defined for us in order that you might understand just what is the nature and the character of agape love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul gives us a very good definition of agape. He said it suffers long and is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't vaunt itself. It's not provoked. It doesn't behave itself in a weird manner. It isn't seeking its own way. But it believes all things and it hopes all things and it endures all things and it doesn't fail. Paul gives another definition for it in Galatians 5.22 where he said, the fruit of the Spirit in your life, if your life is filled with the Spirit, truly filled with the Spirit, this will be the fruit, this will be the result. It is agape. And then he defines it for you. Joy, peace, long-suffering, Gentle, good, meek, self-controlled or temperate. And, and, and these are the characteristics of this agape love. Now this is the love that Jesus taught his disciples that they should have. This is the kind of love that Jesus has where he was willing to give himself for us. And it's the kind of love that he desires from us, that selfless kind of giving love. 
And so he asked Peter, do you love me more than these? Or is your love for me the supreme love of your life? And that's what Jesus is wanting to know from you. Is your love for him the supreme love of your life? Or are there other things that you love more? The Ten Commandments, the first one is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Are there gods? Are there loves? Are there interests in your life that take precedence over your interest in God and your relationship with God? Is God first? Everything else can go by the boards. Nothing else matters as much as my relationship with God. I love him supremely. That's what Jesus is asking. Now, when Jesus was questioned concerning the greatest commandment, he quoted what is known as the Shema out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And Jesus added, The second is like unto the first, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And he said, In these two are all the law and the prophets. Now he used the word agape to, def to translate the Hebrew into the Greek. That is, your love for God should be supreme with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Your love for God is to exceed all other loves. So Jesus is saying, Peter, do you love me supremely? Do you love me more than these? More than the old life of fishing? At this time, the fish were probably still flopping there in the nets on the shore. The net was full of fish. It really represented the epitome of success in the career that he had been following. Is that more important to you? Do you love that more than you love me, Peter? Jesus talked about the sacrifice of following him, how that no man has given up houses or homes, brethren, family, for my sake and for the gospels. He said, if a man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. But a man who was not willing to forsake all to follow Jesus, Jesus said, wasn't really worthy for the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't want a part of your love. He doesn't want a part of your life. He wants all of your love. Lovest thou me more than these? The question is, what are the these in your life? What are the things that are vying in your heart with your love for Jesus? Do these things exceed your love for Jesus? Or is your love for him above all other loves? That's what he desires. Now, Jesus had said to his disciples at the Last Supper, 
He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. In other words, our love for Jesus is proved by our obedience to him, keeping his commandments. And his commandments were that we were to love one another. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So, do you love me, Jesus said, more than these? Is your love for me supreme? And Peter was not keeping the Lord's commandment when he said, I'm going fishing. When they had, back in Luke 5, caught all of those fish when they got to shore, after this tremendous catch, the boats were just up to the gunnels. Jesus said, come, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And they left their nets and they followed Jesus. Peter's going back to the nets. There is a draw, there is a, something there that is still attractive. Peter, do you love me? more than these. Now, Peter was caught in a position where he could not really say, yes, Lord, I love you supremely because his actions did not really declare that. And so instead of using the word agape, or agapas, and responding to Jesus, he said, Lord, you know all things, and you know that I am fond of you. He used the word phileo. I admire you. I, I respect you. I'm fond of you. But when you're asking someone if they really love you, you don't want them to just be fond of you. You don't want them to say, well, I think you're a very nice person. You want to hear the words, I love you. You know, I mean, it's just, that's what you desire to hear. And so Jesus said to Peter, feed my lambs. The word feed there in the Greek is bosco, or boski. And it is more than just feeding, it's tending, it's watching over, taking care of my lambs. In other words, if you love me, Peter, you're not to fish the rest of your life. If you love me, my commandment is for you to tend, take care of my lambs. Notice he didn't say take care of your lambs. They're not Peter's lambs. They're the Lord's lambs. Take care of my lambs. Tend them. Interesting in Peter's first epistle, chapter 5, as he is writing to the elders of the church, he said, tend, he uses the same word, Bosky, tend the flock of God which is among you. Take the oversight. 
not for filthy lucre's sake, but just out of love, watch over them, tend them, take care of them. And that is the duty of the pastor of the church. Is it, the feeding is a part of it, but it's not the totality of it. That's just a part of it. It's, it's tending them. It's nurturing them. It's watching over them. And so he said to Peter again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Again, using the word agapos. And he said unto him, Yes, Lord, thou knowest that I am fond of you. Again, using the word phileo, which is a lesser degree of love. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now here the Greek word is different in both cases of feed and sheep. The first one was the bosky, my lambs. And here is uh, the word shepherd over my sheep. Probata, the sheep. And this is, this is the idea of feeding as a shepherd leading them to the green pastures and all. And then he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, are you fond of me? He used Peter's word, phileo. Now, Peter was grieved because Jesus said, are you fond of me? Jesus was no longer asking, do you love me with this divine, intensive, supreme love? Where do I fit, Peter, in the category of the loves that you have? Where do I fit, Peter? Do you love me more than these? Are there other things that are of greater interest, greater concern? Do you have a greater love for these other things? Or Finally, Peter, are you fond of me? Where do I fit? How far down the list in the interest and in the loves of your life is my place? Are you fond of me? It grieved Peter that Jesus would use his word We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the Gospel of John in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the love of your life. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order John 20 through 21 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. 
If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Thank you, Father, for the record that you have given to us and that you have left for us. Thank you for your word, which has become a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. May we walk in its light. Lord, we ask that our hearts will ever be open, that you might teach us, Lord, wondrous things out of your word ever open to the work of the Holy Spirit that you want to accomplish in our lives and that work of the Spirit that you want to accomplish through our lives. May we become instruments, Lord, through which you can accomplish your will. And Father, help us, we pray, to become so keenly aware of your presence that no matter where we are, in what circumstances or situations, we'll realize that you are with us. You are there beside us. And thus, Lord, may we never do anything that we would not want to do right in plain sight of you. Lord, help us to remember you're there. Next time we're tempted to blow up over a situation. Next time we start to react or respond in our flesh, Lord, just remind us you're there. Tap us on the shoulder, Lord. Let us know your presence so that we will not do those things that would offend you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. As I look around for a godly example of what a Christian woman should be, I see a lot of women who are concerned about what they look like. But rarely do I see a woman who desires the reflection of Jesus Christ. For this very reason, Kay Smith has written a book for women entitled Reflecting God. Kay teaches women godly attributes, such as how to be joyful when things aren't going so great, or how to be sincere when praying for others, or inspiring them, or how to nurture and influence the people God has placed around you. As Kay teaches God's attributes, women will begin to have the mind of Christ. And as this starts to happen within you, outwardly you will become a reflection of God to a world that desperately needs Him. For more information on how to order the book Reflecting God by Kay Smith, as well as an optional study guide to lead a women's Bible study, Visit thewordfortoday.org to see a preview of this book or call us at 800-272-WORD.